You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So about a month ago, I guess it was yeah, a month ago at this point, I saw a post out on the Mascouda uh, Community Facebook page uh, that a neighbor was looking for a hand. He had injured his rotator cuff, and he had a bunch of labor that he needed done, and he couldn't do it himself. So he reached out to neighbors asking for help uh, doing some of that. And so he had said, I, I think I need two guys. I'll pay each 100 bucks to come out and help me out with this work. And so valuing the opportunity to help out a neighbor and to meet a new neighbor and, um, and also valuing the opportunity to invite my oldest, he's 15, uh, to come do some labor with his dad and to help out a neighbor, I go to Jack, my oldest, and I say, hey, Got a guy who needs some help. He's offering 200 bucks. You can have the whole thing. Let's go get it done for him. And so we went over on a Sunday afternoon, and he had like a dozen reptile enclosures that he needed moved from one room in his house to another. And I'm not a snake guy, and so it was a job, right? And so we did that for a few hours, got to know this neighbor, moved these reptiles from one room to another, and uh, it was a bit of a beast of a job. And we get done. He gives the 200 bucks to Jack. And I just tell the guy, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity to help you out. Uh, and really, this payment is a blessing, too. My son's 15. He'll be on the road in about nine months, and he's saving up for his first car. So this is a real blessing. And the guy says, well, you're looking for a car. I can give him a car right now. And he takes Jack and I out to his backyard, and he shows us this parked 1978 Mercury Cougar XR7. And it's been parked for some time. It's completely covered in just dirt and leaves or whatever. And he says, you know, I told myself I was going to turn this thing into a low rider. I haven't touched it. It's been parked here a long time. I'm afraid the city's going to yell at me soon. I was going to junk it. If he wants it, he can have it. So he signs over the title to Jack, and we call up Lonnie's in town. We have it towed over to the house, and we call up Pastor Dude. We say, can you lend us a pressure washer? And he and I go out there, and we go to town on this thing, and Jack just sees with his own eyes as this thing comes to life, and it really cleaned up well. He's been out there kind of buffing it and waxing it. And then we took that 200 bucks and we went online and we ordered a fresh carburetor for it and we ordered a distributor for it. And Jack and I are going to work together to install those. And we got a buddy who's going to come over with a timing light and help us set the timing on this thing. And before long, hopefully in about six months, we'll have it back on the road. This is the story of how the junker in my neighbor's backyard became Jack's first car. And the reason why I tell you this story is because we probably drove past that car 200 times. It's like right over on Church Street. We take that street all the time. It's been sitting there, never noticed it, because for a year, it's just been a beater deteriorating in the backyard of a neighbor's yard. But in a moment, it was given a distinction. In one moment, it went from the beater in the neighbor's backyard to Jack's first car. And this will be the only car that Jack received as payment for helping out a neighbor with his dad. This will be the only car that he saw towed to his front yard. This will be the only car that he pressure washed with his dad and saw it come to life with his own eyes. This will be the only car that he learns how to install a carburetor on with his dad, that he learns how to put in a distributor in with his dad, that he learns how to set timing with his dad. It will be the first and only car that he pulls out of the driveway for the first time with a license, God willing. It'll be the car that he takes his driver's test in this night. 1978 Mercury Cougar XR7. It's a great car. Now, I say that to say that if I went to my neighbor and he was looking for some advice on what to do with this Mercury Cougar XR7, I would have given him the number of the closest junkyard that gives the best prices. 
But the advice that I give Jack, the instruction that I give Jack about this same Mercury Cougar XR7, now that it has been given the distinction of being his first car, is entirely different. It looks like how, do you, how we install and we, and we tune a carburetor. It's how we install a distributor. It's how we set the timing. It's how we get it on the road. And as I explained to Jack that, you know, this is a 78 and this thing has a two-barrel carbon and we can upgrade it to a four-barrel carbon. We've got the four-barrel intake and we can do that if we want to. We're going to start with a two-barrel car, but it's a big and heavy car. It's not going to have a lot of get up and go. So when you're pulling out into traffic, you're going to want to give yourself some time. This thing was a cruiser. And when I explained to him that this thing is a bit, bit of a boat, it's a bit of a boat, and so you're going to want to give yourself some space when you go to park this thing. I'm giving him specific instruction regarding the distinction that's been made about this car. This car is now my son's first car, and so my instructions about this car are different because this car has now been set apart. And so on Jack's end of things, he understands that this car is a little bit different, that it's been set apart. This is my first car. So he feels entirely different about it. And as his father, understanding that he's going to be driving this car with no airbags. <laughs> My instructions about this car are also quite different than the instructions about this car that I might have given the neighbor about what to do with this car. I make this point to say that it would not be helpful to Jack if I were to say, this is your first car, do whatever you want. It wouldn't be helpful to me to say to Jack, this is your first car, here is a maintenance book on a 2020 Camry. Doesn't apply to a 1978 Mercury XR7. The distinction on this car, my understanding that this is a 78 Cougar, informs the instructions that I'm going to give him about this set-apart car. I understand how the 78 Cougar works compared to a 2020 Camry, and I'm going to give him instructions that are helpful and useful and loving to him regarding this car. Makes sense. Now, I might also give him any number of other distinctions that do apply to all cars, like don't run over children, stop at stop signs, wear your seatbelt, stuff like this. But for the most part, the detail and the specificity around my instruction is, is wrapped up in the fact that I understand that we're dealing with a specific car for a specific person at a specific time. Are you tracking with me? The reason why I give this as an example is because this morning I want to talk to you primarily about holiness, about an idea of holiness. Now, holiness at its root is to be set apart. Holiness means uh, the state of being set apart. And there is only one who in and of himself is holy, who in and of himself is the set apart one, and that's our creator God. Now, this is like the overarching premise of everything that I want to preach this morning, so I want to anchor us in it, and I want you guys to track with me this far, okay? There's only one set-apart one, and his name is God. He's the creator, and everything else is created, and we put, put everything in one of those two buckets, created things and uncreated things, and God stands alone as the uncreated one, and everything else stands together as created beings by the creator God. And so that tells us two things. It, it informs for us both how we interact with and understand the uncreated one, that we stand in reverence and awe of him, but then also how we understand ourselves that as created ones, that he as the creator even understands how we work better than we do. That we draw a whole bunch of theological ideas and truths from this reality that he stands alone as the holy one and we are his creation. And so I don't leave it to Jack to kind of figure out for himself what to do with his new car, right? We say like, hey, 
this thing has a distinction and there are things that we can understand about it based on that distinction. It's the same thing with God. God is the only one who can give distinction. Now, so for anything else to become holy, because nothing else in and of itself is holy, the Holy One must make it holy or otherwise declare it holy. And when the Holy One, God, makes something that is otherwise unholy, holy, or gives it the distinction of holiness, or calls it holy, he who alone is holy can set the terms. He's the only one who can set the terms about what it means to regard a holy thing as holy, to treat a holy thing as holy. He's the only one who can tell something he's made holy, what it looks like to behave like it's holy, what it looks like to behave within the distinction that he's made for it. And that's what we're going to see in each of the commands and precepts and statutes that God gives throughout all of the Bible and in the book of Leviticus and here in chapter 19. But what we need to understand is that it's all flowing out of something. So what I don't want to do is have us enter into verse 19 of chapter 19 and act like we started here because we didn't. We got here by marching methodically through the entire chapter of 19 and it opened like this if I can remind you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Everything that we're walking through in this book and everything I'm going to talk about this morning is an outflow from that opening statement that God commanding Moses to declare to all the congregation of Israel, you shall be holy. We are watching God tease out for us the mechanics and the details of this opening statement that a people shall be holy. Why? Because he said so. The Holy One reached into time and space and picked a people for himself and declared over them, you shall be holy. And then from that place starts to deal with those specific people about what it looks like for them to be holy. Now, if holiness is at its root bringing the characteristics of God to bear in creation because he alone is holy, then he's the one who's going to tell us how to do it, right? Show us what it looks like. And he's not going to give us instructions that don't apply to us. So I want to come back to that point, though, but there's Something that I want to preach against this morning, an idea that is very common in my circles, and a, a, a mindset that I hear often, and it sounds something like this. It's kind of a caution or a warning, and it sounds like this. You can raise your hand if you've heard something like it. Yes, God is loving, but he's also holy. Yeah, God is loving, but he's also holy. Have you heard something like this before? And when we create that distinction, first thing I want to say, I hate it. I hate it because I think God hates it. Because subtly in a statement like that, in some cautioning language like that, like, yeah, yeah, God is loving, but don't forget, he's also holy, is to pit his lovingness against his holiness as if they are opposed to one another, as if they're held in tension. It's this idea that God's love is somehow unholy or that God's holiness is somehow unloving, that the far-reachingness of his love is held back or bridled by his holiness or that his holiness is bridled by his love, that somehow these things are working against one another. And we see it in the way that we regard God all the time, almost like we're trembling as we approach God, wondering whether or not we're going to encounter his holiness or his love. Wondering, have I done enough to tap into his love rather than his holiness? 
Have you been there? I've been there. But this morning I want to show you and demonstrate for you from our text that God's love and his holiness are not in tension with one another. They are not opposed to one another. That he doesn't turn on one in order to execute the other. That his love is wrapped in his holiness and his holiness is wrapped in his love. And in some ways I would say that you best experience and witness his love when it is against the backdrop of his holiness and you best experience his holiness when it is witnessed against the backdrop of his love. That these things are not intention. Jonathan Edwards once said, holiness is a most beautiful, lovely thing. Men are apt to drink in strange notions of holiness as if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, or unpleasant thing. But there's nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. It is the highest beauty, a divine beauty. And I agree. God's holiness is beautiful and divine and lovely. And we're misunderstanding if we see it differently. But we start to read these commands, and I haven't been in all of your GCs, but the discussions in GC as we work through a book like Leviticus are generally probably going to be challenging discussions where we're kind of zeroing in on the minutia in the book of Leviticus and picking out a statute or a law or an idea or a command or a judgment and thinking to ourselves things like, maybe we wouldn't say it, but things like God seems a little heavy-handed here. God's holiness is a little prickly here, a little sour, a little morose. And it comes from a very specific place, I would venture to say, and it, and it sounds like this, and again, I know we don't say it with our lips, but if we're quiet and we work it out, I think most of us would land here in these moments where God's holiness seems like it's in contrast to his love, and it sounds like this. I'm the lovely one. I'm the beautiful one. I am otherwise lovely and healthy and beautiful and good. I am well and happy. I'm the lovely one. And so if God is holy, or like I said, to be holy means to be separated or to be other than, to be holy is to be set apart, then God, if you're set apart from me, then the fault is found in you. And so if you need to go through all of these hoops or set all of these rules and regulations about what it looks like in order for you to be close to me or me to be close to you, this is kind of your thing. But I consider your holiness to be a great imposition on me because I find my life to generally be better when I'm not concerning myself with all of that. Now at the root of that type of thinking, at the root of that kind of subtle, quiet, resistance or kind of trying to work your way through the statutes of God and be like, does this still apply? What did God really mean when he said that? It starts from this place of, I'm the lovely one. And church, I want to tell you this morning, as we work through our text this morning, that you are not the lovely one. You're not the lovely one, not until Christ makes you lovely, not until God looks upon the unholy person and makes him holy, do we get to deal in those terms. Now, you are the lovely one. Let me, let me say it up front. You are the lovely one, but you've been made lovely by the lovely one. And apart from the lovely one making you lovely, you are not the lovely one. God does not write these precepts and statutes for us to read as some hypothetical thing like, hey, in case you end up in a situation where you can use kind of false measurements, don't do it. 
In case you ever end up in a situation where you might lie, don't do it. I'm not saying you've done it. I'm not saying you would do it. But just in case you do it, just want to tell you, not a good idea to do it. God is dealing with you like the 1978 cougar. You're right there. I know how you work. I know what you do. I've seen you lying, cheating, and stealing. I have seen you murdering and raping and, 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 and slaving. I have seen the darkness of the human heart. I'm talking to you. These are not non-specific laws and precepts that are for a general people. These are for these people. And he's taking them into the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. And they are quickly and readily and happily adopting all of the customs and behaviors of these people who have not been set apart by God. They are glad to take on and adopt the identity of a people who have not been set apart. And God has not spoken over them. You shall be holy, for I am holy. I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see, let's, let's go through this really quick. I mean, uh, let's, uh, let's read, like, in two seconds what Pastor Michael preached for you guys last week. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And apparently holiness starts at home because the first place he goes is to the home. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep the Sabbath, for I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, for I am the Lord your God. Make your sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. When you reap your harvest in your land, leave some behind for the poor and for the sojourner, because I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely or profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker you shall pay. You shall not harm the deaf or the blind. You shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You shall not go around and slander one another. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord your God. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you hear the drumbeat? You miss the drumbeat if you pick a sentence out of what God is saying and you nitpick it to death. You miss the drumbeat. You shall be my people and I shall be your God. You shall be my people. I shall be your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And you shall be my people. You shall be holy as I am holy. God is teaching his people, these specific people, teaching us what it looks like to belong to him. To have the Holy One reach into unholy spaces, dark and ugly and broken spaces, and declare over dark and ugly and broken things, you shall be holy. And then he starts addressing them. He starts airing their dirty laundry, and he starts correcting it and showing them what it looks like to display his characteristics in creation. And so he continues... Verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind, or you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth. 
made of two kinds of material. You're going to notice in the book of Leviticus that God seemingly moves from uh, what we might consider minor areas of life to major areas of life, and he does it like back and forth, back and forth all throughout. And I want to make sure that we don't miss that drumbeat. What we should be hearing loud and clear as we see God doing this is, uh, when I say you shall be holy, I mean in your living room with your mom and dad, I mean in the field. I mean in your business dealings. I mean as you travel among foreigners. I mean as foreigners travel among you. God is clearly demonstrating as he covers all these areas of life that he is after holiness in every corner, in every space. And he's making something clear about himself as he does that. That he's not sometimes holy and he's not in some spaces holy and in others not. To be holy as he is holy is to be holy always, to be holy everywhere in every space. And so first, he starts to deal with agricultural law, dealing with crossbreeding and sowing different kinds of seeds in the same field and wearing garments of cloth made of two kinds of material. Some of these, the imagery pops out immediately because we've just learned them, but we know that the priestly garments he had said, he had called them holy and they're reserved for the priests and they were the ones that were to be made out of mixed materials. And so in this one he's saying, you shall not take what I have called holy and make it common. Don't take the type of garment that I have set aside for the priests and start wearing it among the common people. I have set this aside. Like we said, holiness is about setting aside. I've set this aside for the priests. We don't make it common. And we can sit there and be like, God, it seems heavy-handed. We're talking about garments. But guys, it's not long before we start thinking that God's being heavy-handed in some of the most consequential areas of our life when it comes to his desire for us to keep things set apart. For example, we know that God in creation gave definitions for marriage, right? That he instituted man and woman and entering into covenant relation with him for one lifetime and that by it two become one and that in their union of two becoming one that they experience something of what it means for God to dwell in community as one and within the, the Godhead and the Trinity. We know that within the, the, the bounds of that of that one man, one woman for one lifetime marriage by which they can experience unity in one flesh that they can model for the world around them a gospel story of what it looks like to die to self and to sacrifice for another for a lifetime. We know that God was super serious and like knew what he was doing, right? When he defined and created marriage as an institution of worship on earth, right? But when we take it and we make what is a holy thing common, then something like marriage becomes a social contract. You sign here, I sign there, we make a general agreement about how this benefits us, and if it doesn't anymore, we just break the contract. So we go from covenant to contract, when we make it common. And if we would do it with something so grand as marriage, we would certainly do it with something so small as garments, right? Or how we tend to feel. God cares about his definitions of holiness being played out in the small corners of our life that we might see that he's the one who sets terms for holiness and that his ways are good. And so when you do things like keep your fields separate and keep your cattle separate and you keep your garments separate, you're in many ways emphasizing within your own spirit and in your own mind an understanding about what God means when he says, I am setting you apart. 
You are a people who in every corner of your life, I want you to be set apart. So you're setting apart your fields, you're setting apart your cattle, you're setting apart your garments. And then he moves quickly like he's prone to do to this very serious matter. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord. This is big. Like, guys, if you think that God's not being specific or dealing with very specific people here, that he doesn't know his people, this would be a great spot to see that you're getting that wrong. God has the foresight to say, all right, I gave a command about what, a, what to do when you see adultery. A married man and a married woman come together and, and, and they have sex with one another. Well, they've each committed adultery and I've spoken on what to do there. Well, now let's say that there's a situation. Well, what if there's a slave and she's spoken for, but the bridal price hasn't been paid yet, so she hasn't been redeemed, so she's still a slave and a free man sleeps with her. Is she an adulteress? This is like a very specific question. And God's answering it because he knows it has come up and it will come up because this is what his people do. And so he gets into the weeds with them and I should say for them. He says, no, she was not free. They shall not be put to death. She has not yet been ransomed or given her freedom. And in that, he's revealing about himself that he is never a God who treats the, who treats the, uh, the, the slave or the captive unjustly, but that he has compassion on the slave and the captive. But the free man is to make his compensation before the Lord. And we know that the Lord sees this man's deed as heinous and serious because he calls for the ram. For the guilt offering, which we've gone through the offerings. Continuing, when you come into a land and any kind of tree and plant any kind of tree for food, you shall regard its fruit as forbidden for three years. It shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. In the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be called holy. Like we said, this means set apart for God as an offering of praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. So to see God's attitude in more agri like agricultural law, where he's dealing in minutia here. We know that there are practical benefits of this, that pruning the buds for the first three years creates a tree that gives much better yield later on in its life. And all of that likely had something to do with why God gave this command, because it is for the benefit of the increased yield for them later on. This is science. But beyond the science, you also see that God is, in the same way that he is putting limitations on crossbreeding, that the Lord is putting limitations on mankind playing creator. That God wants for mankind to always yield to him as creator, to keep the distinction between creator and created. Crossbreeding and making your own animals. He said, you know, I did my job making the animals and I created distinctions between them. And every time that you recognize and honor those distinctions, you see me in my right place as creator. In the same way with the fields, keep them separate. Don't make your crossbreeds or fruits and all of those things. See and keep them separate and see all of the, all of the um, 
great options that I have already given you within the seed, which is amazing. And then you're going to see later in the Bible, it's kind of a sub-point, that he wants all mixed vines to be offered to him in worship as holy. See, there's something that God starts to reveal to us about his view towards mixtures. Mixtures, time and time again throughout the Old Testament, him asking his people to set them aside as holy, to consecrate them to him. There's a reason for it. It's because without him, without the Holy One reaching into unholy spaces to make other things holy, mixture can't happen. The reason why the sinner can dwell with the Holy God is because the God makes mixture possible by the blood of Christ. We're going to get there, guys. But there's a theme that the Lord is revealing to his people progressively about where the possibility of mixture comes from of intermingling, of tearing down dividing walls, of letting things of two kind come together. But there's a real risk as they're coming into the land of Canaan that they are going to intermix with the Canaan people and their pagan gods and their pagan practices, and he is wanting to define for them what it looks like to keep themselves separate. So he wants this drumbeat of you have been set apart. You are my people and I am your God, this drumbeat, you are set apart, you are set apart, you are set apart, to work its way into every corner of their life, in the field and in the business dealing. Verse 26, you shall not eat with the blood, any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes or round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbath in reverence, my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers or do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Here the Lord specifically calls out seven or eight specific pagan practices that they will encounter in the land of Canaan. Cutting yourself and and pouring out your blood in worship to the god Baal was a common practice. Temple prostitutes, it was considered an honor to send your daughter to go and be a prostitute before the gods as a form of worship. Tattooing yourself, marking yourself with the marks of the gods was common among the people. Eating flesh with the blood in it, carving your beard, marking your head a certain way, these were all pagan practices and God forbade them all. God said, you shall not go into the land that I am giving to you and take the practices of those who worship false gods. He deals specifically with interpreting omens and telling fortunes and turning to mediums or necromancers to not seek them out and make yourself unclean by them. It breaks my heart that I feel like it's still relevant for me to preach this, but it's so relevant to preach this. I was at Barnes & Noble two months ago. I walked into the self-transformation section. It's like two walls full of witchcraft. Two walls full of... I'm talking like this is like the predominant pursuit of how I take claim of my life, how I can, how I can take some control of my future. The Lord says we don't seek it out. We don't, we don't talk to the dead for guidance on my future, to make a better life for myself. We talk to the living God. Talk to the living God. 
He even contrasts necromancy with respecting the gray head. Like you would rather talk to the dead than talk to the old man, than respect the old man. He says, no, turn to those who have been walking with me for a generation. The one who's been walking with me his whole life. The one who can lead you to the living one. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man. You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And then we get to the heart of it here at the end of chapter 19. Kind of ends very similarly to the way that Pastor Michael's passage ends. You you see this building of a case for what it looks like to be holy as he is holy. And he makes this declaration, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that Jesus summed up the law of God the same. He said the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went one further. He said, not just your neighbor, you love your enemy as yourselves. And then he demonstrated it for us on the cross, what it looks like to love your enemy. Well, we just see great parallel with what the law of God reveals to us when we hear in verse 33, when a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I and the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. You see, you see this progression by which God is showing us, I am the Lord your God and you are my people. Progress, 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 progress. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God and you are my people. Progress, 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 progress. Love the foreigner as yourself. And when he gets into these specifics about what that looks like, the people would have felt so seen. And if we're not feeling seen by the laws and the precepts and the commands that God is giving. I'm telling you, the reason is, is because we're primarily looking for Canaanites. The Canaanites got a very tiny section of chapter 19, didn't they? The laws of God are not primarily, don't be like them. It's not primarily God saying, you are to be set apart from them. It is primarily God saying, you are to be set apart from you. From you. I want to deal with what's in you. I am making something new in you. I am taking something that was once unholy and I am saying it shall be holy. And here's how He's dealing with you. So, yes, don't copy the Canaanites, but by God, don't do what you've been doing. See, He's saying when He talks about like the wrong judgments and the measures and length of quantity, there was a very common practice. It's still common. So, when you're, when you're dealing in the marketplace, you've got these scales. This, this balance, and they would have, and the and the Israelites they were they were accused often of having these two weights. They would look the same, little bags filled with sand or stones that they would use to balance the other side as they were measuring out whether it was grain or whatever it is that you were selling and buying. 
And so, when, especially when the foreigners would come in who didn't know any better, they'd come in and, they, and when they were measuring out what they were selling to them, they would use the unjust weight to act like there was less on the scale than there was. And then when they were selling, they would use the other weight to make it seem like there was more on the scale than there was. God isn't like, just in case in the future you ever think about using a heavier stone when you're weighing out the grain. God is saying, I see what you're doing. I've seen what you've done. I know what you are. I have seen how you have dealt harshly and dishonestly. I've seen how you have lied, how you have slandered, how you have testified against the life of your brother. He's saying, I have seen these things. I have seen how you have treated the foreigner among you, despite the fact that you were a foreigner in the land of Egypt, but I rescued you out of there. They would have felt seen. And we are meant to feel seen by God when we read these commands. These are not hypotheticals. These are super specific. He's after our hearts here. And he's showing, it what, showing us what it looks like to be holy. It's one thing entirely for somebody who does not bear the name of God, who has not been called set apart by God, to behave like one who has not been set apart by God. God is saying it's an entirely different matter when I have said you shall be holy and I have said you will be my people and I shall be your God. When you bear my name and then you go out into the world where you have been called to display and shine my holy attributes to this fallen and broken world and then you behave with an unjust balance where you take advantage of the marginalized. He's very much about his people reflecting his holiness. Now, this should land hard if we forget the gospel. Because the truth is, is that there is none in here who probably this week has not been dishonest in some way. Misled others, misled themselves. Hidden the reality sinned overtly, lying, cheating, stealing, harming. And the laws of God in Leviticus, they served to condemn. They served to condemn. They do very little other than show us that even if you give us the checklist, God, even if you get into the minutia, God, even if you tell us very specifically that literal thing that you're doing, stop doing that, I don't do that. You're my people, I don't do that. I don't cheat, I don't lie, I don't steal. I don't use the two different sandbags. That's not what I'm about. If he gets into the details and tells us exactly what to do, still, again and again, we end up exiled in Babylon because we just won't listen. Again and again, returning to our sin and rejecting the call that we shall be holy. But then Christ comes. And when Christ comes, God does not crush the law for love. God crushes Christ for love. 
Christ comes and perfectly fulfills the law, lives a life of total obedience to every cross, T, and dot, I of the law and precepts of God. He himself bearing the perfect imprint of his nature, living the life that we were intended and commanded to live, and then dying the death that sinners deserve to die, raising victorious over that death and offering us new life by his blood so that when we stand before God, we have the covering of Christ protecting us from the judgment of God that is due to sinners. So when he says, I, you shall be holy, he meant it. He makes us holy by the blood of Christ. And by the blood of Christ, he sends us the Spirit of God to indwell us to make it possible for us to actually carry out holiness in this life, that there might be pockets of heaven to invite others into. And so church, God is not messing around when he calls us to personal holiness. He's not. He means it so much that he provides the way to it. He provided the means. In your behavior, you cannot, the unholy thing cannot make itself holy. It's not what you're being called to here this morning. The Holy One alone can make you holy. And by the blood of Christ, he has done so if you find yourself in him. And if you are outside of Christ this morning, then you are bound to every I and every T in the law of God. And you will not be able to hold up the record of your performance before your God and hear those words that we all long to hear one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. You will fail. And you will stand before the judgment of God. So the law serves to show us that we cannot fulfill it, but there is one who could, and he did on our behalf, and then he has indwelled us with his Holy Spirit in order that we might carry out his holiness in this life. And so I want to invite you guys into that this morning. I want to invite you guys to deal with the Lord this morning, to repent again and again and again for all of the areas where we fail, and then to thank and worship that your repentance is received with a glad heart by a God who paid for your sin for you, that you were no longer judged based on your obedience, but based on his obedience for you. If we see anything of the heart of God this morning, I pray that we would see that the law of God is wrapped up in this, that we are to love the neighbor and our enemy as ourselves as we fix our eyes on Jesus who loved us, his enemy, as himself and paid our way out of this bondage and into freedom with God. So will you just pray a prayer of thanks with me this morning?